Hi, I'm Ken. And I'm Dee. And this is Antiques Freaks Today with special guest Dr. Elizabeth Yuko. Hello! Hi! Hello! Here to tell us all about the sanitary craze of the early 20th century. And how it changed the way our houses look. So, Elizabeth, does this have anything to do with, you know, microscope technology improving throughout the 19th century to the point that germs could actually be proved to exist so people finally accepted germ theory instead of bunkling about with miasma theory? In part. Ooh. Yes. There's more. Arguably, the sanitary craze started pre-germ theory. Oh. Yeah. Surprise twist. Let's get into it. Yeah. So, I would probably put the beginning of what we would later refer to as the sanitary craze, but kind of the the seeds of that idea in with the beginning of the domestic science movement. So for those unfamiliar with the domestic science movement, it was what we now call home economics, but something completely different, not, you know, a class that most high schools now probably don't offer because it's seen as archaic, but it was a movement among women to legitimize housework and to use science, which certainly was perceived as a masculine thing, to make their invisible labor a little bit less invisible. And both in terms of being better at keeping a house as well as trying to gain some footing in their household. So I'm pretty sure, at least on one episode, uh, you discussed the separate spheres, you know, during the Victorian era and a little bit earlier, where a woman's, you know, castle was the home and a man's place was literally everywhere else. (laughs) So all of public. Part of the idea of the domestic science movement was that, okay, well, if we're confined to the home and that's what we're the boss of, we're going to own it and we're going to gain power within our own households, but also by raising healthy children and a healthy husband and, you know, sending them out into the world to make good moral ethical decisions and, you know, all that type of thing. So that started developing really in the 1840s. One of the first big people in the domestic science movement, although she referred to it as domestic economy, was Catherine Beecher. You probably are familiar with multiple members of her family, like her father, Lyman, and her sister, Harriet, who later obviously went on to write uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And Catherine Beecher was... I believe the eldest sister of the family, she never married, and she wrote several books on domestic economy. The first being a treatise on domestic economy from 1841, and another that came in 1869 that she co-wrote with Harriet, The American Woman's Home. And she touches on everything from cooking to cleaning to home design and architecture, where, you know, the outhouse should be relocated in relation to the rest of the house. Downstream, ideally. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And, you know, was aware of, you know, groundwater contamination and didn't, you know, at that point understand the science behind it because most scientists, you know, didn't, but still knew that, that there were things you could do that would be more likely to make you sick. And there were other authors like Catherine who put forth similar books. So germ theory was being formulated for quite a while, but the 1870s, 1880s seems to be when it started really spreading. 
it would still take a few more decades before like general American public would believe <laughs> that these tiny things you can't see are responsible for our illnesses rather than, as you mentioned, Ken, the miasma is a, a bad smell, which it seems weird now, but at least you could smell it. Whereas, you know, germs you couldn't see, you couldn't smell. It was just kind of these these things. Yeah, I've got proof of bad smells. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. when I get this bad smells out of my house, I get less sick. So clearly... Yes. Exactly. It's definitely a case of right for the wrong reason. <laughs> yeah, like redesigning the hospitals around miasma theory did make people healthier, just not for the reasons they thought it did. Yes, exactly. And so that's why the seeds of the sanitary craze predate germ theory for exactly those reasons. A lot was built around ventilation and sunlight and, you know, fresh air and getting the bad air and the bad, bad smells out, combating dark, stuffy rooms that make people sick and make sick people stay sick and opening up the curtain, like the heavy drapery and letting in the sunlight and that type of thing. Maybe one patient per bed and a space between the beds. <laughs> yes, that would be nice. That would be really nice. And things like washing your hands between working on a corpse and delivering a baby. You know, little things. Even if you're a doctor and educated and therefore impossible to be dirty, you should still wash your hands. Yes. Especially after touching corpses. Most people think it's the right thing to do. <laughs> yes, exactly. And it's... <laughs> Over the years, I keep learning of different stories of individuals who either are women or people of color who tried to convince their communities on the benefits of hand washing before that was the norm and were ignored or silenced. And like, why would that help? That's just crazy talk. But uh, <laughs> turns out it wasn't. Oops. But actually, speaking of people of color and kind of diversity in the domestic science movement, movement by legitimizing this type of work it essentially when it was the domain of middle class and upper class white women it kind of then delegitimizes the work that had previously been done by you know house servants enslaved individuals and everybody else who had been doing housework and did know what they were talking about and had this knowledge all along. But, you know, it wasn't science until a white woman said it was. Oh, boy. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of one of those, like, I root for them in that the women behind the domestic science movement, you know, were trying to work with what they had. And like, okay, well, if I'm not going to be able to attain power in society this way, I'm going to go about it this way. But unfortunately, you know, it comes at, at the expense of recognizing the hard work and, and knowledge of other groups. So yes, there's that. And one of the main reasons a lot of these middle-class white women ended up having to take control of their houses in this manner was the quote-unquote servant problem, which I think you've also mentioned. A little bit, yeah. It's a lot of, um, for some reason, everyone would rather work in a factory for a set number of hours a day and then get to go home and live their own life <laughs> at the end of the day instead of living in our basement and being at our beck and call all but two hours of a day every day we just can't find why anyone why can't i keep a servant why doesn't anyone want to work goodness <laughs> yes a dear friend of ours really loves Downton Abbey, and he made the mistake of watching it with us once. And I may have gone off 
for a while. <laughs> to the point where at the end of the episode, he just turns to me with a brokenhearted look on his face. He's like, was it really that bad? And I'm like, I have bad news for you, buddy. <laughs> it was worse. It wicked sucked. <laughs> this is an idealized version of it. <laughs> oh, no. oh, no. But, yeah. So that's kind of how these women were were doing this this type of work in their houses where previously they may not have done that and have had, you know, at least at minimum, like one girl of all trades, not girl of all trades. Girl of all work. Girl of all work. Thank you. <laughs> yes. They would never let her learn trades. What am I talking about? Because it's one 12 year old child who does all the work in your house. <laughs> and we're just fine with that, I guess. <laughs> yes. Yeah. When you're researching your history, always look into the servants. Uh-huh. Do not let that be a gap in your knowledge. Friendly <sighs> reminder to everyone out there who's into it. Boy. <laughs> yes. Oh, for sure. And actually, that's another sort of darker side of the domestic science movement is that, well, not a darker side, but it goes hand in hand with the sanitary movement, you know, part of the larger reform movement, where, again, you had middle and upper class white people, especially white women, going into slums and tenement areas in crowded cities and saying, these people don't know any better. They're not even white. They're from Italy. And, you know, we're going to have to teach them how to be good hygienic Americans and bathe and, you know, I mean, good things happened, like tenement laws. So, you know, you didn't have 45 people sharing one outhouse, but there was still that underlying mentality of filth equals disease equals immorality. And, you know, some of the early public health reports, even our Department of Sanitation reports from New York, at least, mention things like, you know, if we don't clean up the slums and provide them with running water, there'll be more gambling, theft, prostitution, like that type of thing. Like that's... That's a very correlation causation. <laughs> that's a... <laughs> History is full of right for the wrong reasons. <laughs> I don't know if they were right. Yeah. <laughs> that particular well, like they case. should have provided better. They should have provided better facilities and life quality. Yes. Because that would have made things better. And then yes. you know, like lack of poverty does lead to a decrease in survival, sex work, were, and gambling. I don't know that they were fixing the poverty though. I think they were just telling poor people to buy more money. <laughs> I mean, that's always been the fix, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so when we look at the origins of the domestic science movement, there are overlaps with the sanitary movement and sanitary reform movement. And yeah, Ken, as you mentioned, this was at this point still based on the theory of miasma. And then once actual germ theory started to take, both in Europe and in the United States, there was the idea that germs... They lived in in dust, in dirt, in dark corners. And so there were, again, a lot of overlap with what sanitation and cleanliness involved before. But now you had this visual thing that was like a sure sign that someone's house was dirty and therefore unsanitary and something to target. And that made it easier to market products and services around this concept. Because if you were a housewife or, you know, a woman in charge of managing a household, 
you didn't necessarily have to understand all the science behind germ theory to know that you want your home to be sanitary. That was a word along with hygienic and healthy and fresh, things like that. You wanted your home to be that because you wanted to make your home a healthy place for your family so they didn't end up, you know, as gambling thieves. And that's kind of how the concept of sanitation as something that should be happening in the home really started to take off. But since a lot of the voices writing about sanitation and inside the home especially, as well as reading these manuals were women, as you can imagine, uh, men, uh, architects, engineers, anyone really, politicians, decided to downplay this. That's how it's called, referred to as a sanitary craze, sometimes a sanitation craze, or a fad sometimes. It's a way to kind of belittle this idea that women have any idea what they're talking about. For some reason, my wife wants me to wash my hands before I eat, all of a sudden. <laughs> yes. My wife told me to poop in the toilet, and frankly, I'm thinking about divorcing her. Yeah, I mean, it's inconvenient. <laughs> I'm supposed to take my boots off before I go in the house? Scrape them? You know, like... What? Not just track my manhood all over the house, like I'm entitled to. So, but because people like Catherine Beecher also addressed architecture and house layout, she wasn't just telling women how to clean their houses. She was essentially telling men how houses should be designed. And men did not like that very much. And so this, you know, it was referred to as a sanitary craze, kind of, you know, in the same vein as hysteria, in that, you know, it wasn't really serious. And, you know, these women didn't really know what they were talking about, but they continued to put these books out and spread these ideas and the assumption was that it would pass you know that it was a fad you'll get over this whole germ theory <laughs> yeah tuberculosis is just a fad the kids will get over it polio is <laughs> a flash in the pan yeah exactly that this kind of obsession they had with keeping a healthy home yeah it, it would just go away one day but as it turns out it wasn't a fad and it's something that is widely accepted and has been you know for close to 100 years at this point so although i mean the past few years have been a little bit disheartening because a lot of it seems like deja vu if you know this small weird you know chunk of history <laughs> because you know you're trying to convince the population that something exists and it's a threat and a lot of people either flat out don't believe you or might believe you, but don't think they'll ever be affected. Or decide that they'd rather take a horse dewormer rather than a vaccine designed for humans. Yes. I mean, we've actually gone so far backwards that you've got people pushing back at the idea of please wash your hands. Yes, exactly. In the very beginning of the pandemic, when I started, you know, these articles on the history of, of sanitation and health in the home, we were at a point, this was like March, April, 2020, we were at a point where there was so little we knew about COVID, the preventative measures that we did know of, things like hand washing, wearing masks, being in open air and, you know, well-ventilated spaces and stuff like that were the same measures people used in the 1918 flu pandemic. 
it, you know, during the tuberculosis era, you know, and I understand why that would be frustrating in 2020, but it was also an interesting parallel because that's all we had to work with, you know, and that was the case for people of this era as well, you know, late 19th, early 20th century, when you don't have antibiotics and when you don't have medications that will treat TB and cholera and things like that, then your home is your last and sometimes only defense against these infectious diseases that could easily kill your family. Yeah. I know you've mentioned on at least a few episodes about, you know, Victorian era attitudes towards death. Just because death was so much more common of a, you know, experience then. And I think if you were a woman who was running a household and may have lost children, you know, the idea that you could do something in your home to make it safer so your other children have less of a chance of dying, you know, sounded like a pretty good option. Yeah, that's a powerful motivating factor, I'd say. Yeah, and like a way... I don't want to use the word empowering because, you know, with house cleaning, but, you know, like a way you could actually make a difference when it seems like there was not much you could do. So it did receive some, I mean, not pushback, but I guess more ridicule (laughs) than anything else. I found a few examples in newspapers. One from like a little snippet from the Boston Journal from April 1889 with this heading, The Sanitation Craze. A Boston artist is convinced that there's too much public interest in sanitary measures. He made a charming drawing of a house standing near a pretty river of water, some trees and figures. But this did not satisfy the purchaser who had ordered the picture. He was sure that the house so near the river would be unhealthy. And so the artist was obliged to raise the house upon a hill, which was painted especially for the purpose. The picture was a wreck from an artistic standpoint, but it suited the owner exactly. So, like, this is so crazy that people had to redo art. (laughs) Or there's a poem that ran in the Sunday Oregonian? Oregonian? I don't actually know how to pronounce that word. I'm sure someone from Oregon will correct you eventually. (laughs) Do you know how to pronounce Oregonian? Email us, antiquesfreakspodcast at gmail.com. Keep the cursing to a minimum. Unlike us. <laughs> Apologize to everyone from the great state of Oregon. But yeah, it's from, you know, just how they would have, you know, these single column little snippets from 1905. This, uh, they had, I won't read the whole thing because it's very long. But the title is The Cold That Made Him Hot. And in this case, hot is referring to angry rather than sexually turned on. <laughs> Okay, because I made that face immediately, like, oh my, I'm very spicy. The cold that made you take a second look at the man. (laughs) (laughs) Because my God. But the general gist is that the wife is really into the latest interior designs, regardless of how ridiculous they are. And then she enters her sanitation phase. And then the sanitation craze possessed her for a while. She routed germs in medical terms that only made him smile. She, quote, sterilized the whole darn place and everything they ate. Quote, rules observed that steak was served on an antimicrobe plate. And still he never said a word, but let her navigate. She took down all the draperies and painted all the walls until the rooms resembled tombs and whitewashed stable stalls. (laughs) And then she declared that hygiene prescribed the proper rest. She bought twin beds and turned their heads exactly north-northwest. And still her lord and master hadn't courage to protest. 
Anyway, so it's basically about how annoying she is because she's doing all these, taking all these sanitary measures in the house. And it's, yeah, making it sound like, oh, this is just the latest, latest fad. I love that. (laughs) It's a great poem, but it's also really frustrating. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Because you don't own an antimicrobial plate? Yes, that's why, (laughs) Dee. Not to give it away, but the last straw that really made him hot is when she moved their beds out into the porch to sleep outdoors, like in a tuberculosis sanatorium. He did not appreciate that. I will say, uh, sleeping porches are something I would love to get a resurgence. There's something so romantic about it, and I have just become a Victorian person in romanticizing tuberculosis. (laughs) But... There's nothing more romantic than getting eaten by a bear. Except tuberculosis. Okay, well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. If you didn't know, Ken and I grew up in wildly different biomes. Uh, <laughs> I grew up in the city, and he grew up far enough out in the woods that they had to have, like... Before you go to sleep inside your house, you lock the bear door. Yeah, yeah. So we had very different educations regarding the likelihood of bears snatching us... Which is also why I'm more inclined to think a sleeping porch is a wonderful idea. <laughs> ah, yes. You know, I do as I also do. And every time I pass a house where one is still intact, even if it wasn't original to the house, and I know some historic preservationists will remove a sleeping porch if it wasn't part of the home's original design. I mean, sometimes it's a matter of the sleeping porch was only built to be temporary 100 years ago, and it's still like barely clinging on. In that case, okay, it can't support anyone's weight. It's, you know, not really useful anymore. But yeah, I would love, I would love a sleeping porch. Um, I just have a fire escape, and that's not big enough. Yeah. (laughs) Just the idea of like, I I know I'm so jealous of people with fire escapes that they can like stand on. Um, (laughs) We've got to fix ours. Yeah, sounds like... (laughs) Just the idea of, like, incorporating elements of the outside into the home sounds so exciting and so good. Like, instead of just having a porch, like, it's actually a room that you live in. Yes. So good. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that would be, that would be wonderful. And, I mean, we are kind of moving towards that since the pandemic. Because I've interviewed for a few different articles, modern architects, and not architects specializing in modernism, but architects who are alive today rather than, you know, wrote books 100 years ago. Um, And that is something that a lot of people want in their homes now, if they're building and designing new homes, is this, you know, indoor-outdoor living space, whether it's an outdoor living room or just a bigger patio than they would have had normally. So I think we are headed in that direction at least a little bit. And like you wouldn't build new apartments without a balcony now, that's that type of thing. So I am curious, what from the sanitary craze lives with us today? You know, we're all aware of like plumbing Indoor and plumbing, a flushable yeah. toilet. We, you know, those are Love kind that. of, Love all I mean, they're, they're <laughs> definitely in my top three, but what are, what are some elements that have survived that we might not be aware of? Ooh, lots of good things. Like the ones you mentioned. I guess starting with the bathroom, in addition to the plumbing fixtures themselves, it's also, you know, the walls and the floors. So in houses built before indoor plumbing was a thing, often, especially if they were, you know, bigger houses, they would just cut part of a room and turn it into the bathroom or, you know, turn a smaller bedroom into the bathroom. So that meant usually the floors were made of wood and wood was the enemy of the sanitary craze because all those little nooks and crevices are places where dirt and germs can hide. 
So they did not want wood on the floors or the walls and in its place, either ideally white, but definitely tile or paint or a combination of the two on the walls. And then on the floor, depending on the era, tile or oilcloth floors, which eventually then kind of led to linoleum and then later vinyl. And, you know, if you picture Victorian, there are so few examples of like a good solid Victorian bathroom that was built early enough where sanitation wasn't necessarily a top priority. So it still had heavy drapes, lots of dark wood, maybe a table or a vanity covered in a tablecloth, like lots of wood, lots of textiles. That is wild to think about. I hate thinking about it. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's so damp. Oh, and the wood's being damaged in that damp. Yes. So now things don't matter as much, you know, because if it, even if it looks like wood, it's probably some type of vinyl flooring. But that kind of went away in the kitchen. Something similar happened. White initially was the color of choice because that way you could see the dirt and clean it. And then also when your walls were sparkling white, everybody who came in knew they were clean because you couldn't see any dirt and clean equals healthy. As things progressed, at least until like the 1920s, that's when you start seeing more colors appear in the bathroom as well as the kitchen. Bathroom tiles, paint colors, fixtures. Yellow was a very popular color for kitchens instead of just the plain sterile white. But yeah, the point, especially initially, was to create almost like a hospital-like lab-looking setting in these rooms to really reinforce the idea that these rooms were clean and they're where you go to get clean. And at first, the fixtures were things like clawfoot tubs and toilets with open pipes on the side and pedestal sinks and these more open fixtures. But gradually, those became toilets with the S-pipe cover on the side that you could easily wipe down, sinks with some sort of cabinet below that you could clean around, bathtubs that were fitted into the walls and easier to clean as opposed to trying to, you know, get down on your hands and knees and make sure the centimeter under your bathtub is clean <laughs> oh god cleaning under a clawfoot tub. oh i live with a clawfoot tub i know the struggle oh, i have many many hyper specific <laughs> swiffers um, <laughs> and you know something similar happened in the kitchen because you know when this all started happening most kitchens were unfitted so you had your sink in one area maybe some cabinets maybe a hoosier cabinet but not these built-ins like we have now And as time went on, fitted kitchens became kind of the next step in these hygienic sanitary homes because, again, it was less to clean under and around if everything was all kind of in one piece. And, you know, fitted kitchens, for the most part, remain the norm in America. So that has stuck with us. What else? Wallpaper was a huge problem in days of the sanitary craze for two reasons. The first is, especially in green, our old friend, arsenic. (laughs) 
So people didn't love the fact that there was poison in their wallpaper. And then at the same time, you had people invested in creating sanitary products for the houses that pointed out that most of these wallpapers were not washable. They were, you know, painted designs on wallpaper. And so you had these layers of wallpaper that would become damaged and damp over time and you couldn't wash them and they got dusty. So the solution to that was sanitary wallpaper, which was washable and also did not contain arsenic. (laughs) (laughs) The two holy grails of have things on my walls, not actively poisoning me, not filthy. (laughs) Yeah, those are good things that came out of it. I guess it's hard to tell because a lot of appliances, especially in the kitchen, as well as appliances, you know, like a vacuum used for, you know, cleaning various rooms, came up either during the sanitary craze or after it had kind of calmed down and was just a general concern and effective marketing tool. So, you know, the first models of things were often introduced as a sanitary radiator or, you know, vacuum cleaner or dishwasher. GE had a dishwasher that had like a tagline that was something like simple, sparkling, sanitary. <laughs> I got another question. Yes. Is there a glaring, obvious example of a sanitary craze habit that did not stand the test of time and was perhaps not a great idea? Oh, <laughs> sorry. A sanitary crib, which in theory sounds great. But it's hard because sanitary was just used so widely that what one company markets to sanitary crib might look something completely different from another company. But one sanitary crib that I have found an old ad for allows you to attach it to something else. So the mother has arms, you know, free to do other things. And one of the things that it attaches to is an open window and like open windowsill. And I know that- No. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Oh, boy. Yeah. Oh, boy. And uh, it looks basically like a basket with a handle. There's a little, like, hanger that you could put outside or inside and, you know, hang the hang the little crib from. And that's not great. I mean... No. <laughs> no. Yeah, Rockabye Baby was a cautionary tale, not instructions. Yeah. The <laughs> makers of the sanitary crib did not realize that. And they use that as, like, design influence. I'm kind of reminded of particular hand iron designs, Do I think you brought up in one episode, where it's like, you can tell a man designed this one because you can't grab it without burning the skin off your fingers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the early ones of being all metal. Yeah, it's... <laughs> oh, yes! I'm getting big that vibes with, yeah. like, maybe the person who designed this particular object didn't do childcare an awful lot. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That sounds right, (laughs) 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 to to put it nicely. We also saw a lot of sanitary furniture, which again could mean a wide variety of different things. And it's not that they didn't stand the test of time. It's just that we wouldn't necessarily see furniture marketed that way. And this is something you could find like in old Sears catalogs or Montgomery Ward catalogs or old ads, seeing ads for a sanitary desk, for example, or sanitary wardrobe or table or dresser. And usually that meant it was on casters. So you were able to move it easily so you could clean behind it and around it. That's typically what made something sanitary. 
but also it could mean that it's made out of something that's not wood, like enamel or steel. Or it could mean that it is curvilinear in shape and doesn't have as many corners for dust and dirt and germs to get in and easier to clean. So that became a selling point. And yeah, it really became a way that products were marketed primarily to women who might not have had final approval of how the money in the household was spent, but would have been the one who, you know, handles the budgets and, you know, knows what is going on within a household, a middle-class household, that is. And so you had companies that would hire domestic scientists or home economists on staff who would write household manuals or recipe books on behalf of the company. So they're providing you with these tips, but you are going to be using Sanitas sanitary wallpaper or DuPont's new sanitary paint for the wall or Kohler's new bathtub or, you know, line of bath fixtures, that type of thing. So that was a way that they also built brand loyalty and got into homes and that was also just a very effective way of advertising products for every room in the house. Yeah, I mean, I can't resist the product if it's if, if the competitor says it's good, but the other one says, this is nice and clean. I'm more likely to go with a clean option. Yeah. I mean, who wouldn't want to be sanitary and who wouldn't want to give that to their family, the gift of health? So you can see that in the names of the products from the time, like Sanitas wallpaper that I mentioned, which I believe is still around. The Art Brass Company of New York had a line of nickel bathroom fixtures called Sanola, S-A-N hyphen O hyphen La. You also saw products with hygiene or hygia in the name, as well as ones that mention sterile or sterilized, antiseptic, germs, bacteria, disinfection, like anything like that would be a quick way to communicate that your product was superior to other people's because they're good for your health. Even once the sanitary craze was no longer really a craze, it was still highly effective at reaching like post-war housewives, for example. It extended really to everything. So in addition to bathroom fixtures, which were sometimes called sanitary wear, you also had things in the kitchen, cookware, dishes, sanitary cheese preservers, (laughs) knives that were labeled sanitary, egg beaters. In addition to the sanitary wallpaper, you know, you had sanitary paint come out, which, I mean, in hindsight, I guess having lead doesn't necessarily mean it's not sanitary from a germ perspective. But it's still not it, it like kind of bring us right idea. back kind of put us right back into that green wallpaper problem. Yeah. 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 So that wasn't great. Sanitary radiators which tended to be steam heat which was thought to be, you know, the healthiest form of heat for your home. I mean, certainly not getting any smoke particulates in your face. Yeah. They had a point. Yeah, I think a lot of autoclaves still use steam heat for that reason. Yeah, I mean, my building, I live in Queens. My building was built in the 1920s. And during that era, especially in New York City and larger cities, so post-1918 and 1920 flu pandemic, you had a lot of new buildings going in with steam heat specifically for the purpose of it blasting heat so high that you can open your windows in the wintertime and still feel comfortable. That's why your apartment's so hot all the time, Ken. No, it's hot all the time because everyone else in my building is elderly and my landlord needs to keep them alive. Yeah, but it's still steam heat. Yes. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, I've done exactly that since I moved in to the apartment. And, you know, it took a few years before I realized that that was entirely by design. So that's kind of cool. Bedrooms don't get as much attention in terms of sanitary furniture and decor as, you know, kitchen and bathrooms, which were, you know, the main rooms. But two things in a bedroom that were part of this. Number one is, along with the rest of the wood, wooden beds were thought to be unhealthy because same reasons dirt can get stuck in their grooves and so brass beds or iron beds became popular and recommended for health at the same time the idea of a married couple sleeping in two twin beds i love lucy style also became not necessarily normal widespread normal but certainly widely accepted and like relatively common because and this again started during the miasma theory period bad smells from from your partner while they sleep were thought to possibly make you sick I hate my stinky husband. Uh, push his bed away. <laughs> <laughs> and kind of like, you know, people have smelly situations and maybe, yeah, they were concerned that they'd, be get, they'd get sick. But then, you know, post-germ theory, the proponents of single beds were like, actually, this does make sense because if one person's sick, that doesn't necessarily guarantee the other person will get sick the way it would before. When you were stacking all the kids into one bed, even the ones that had tuberculosis. Yeah. Yikes. Although maybe they did have these beds that were kind of like the sanitary cribs that clipped onto a windowsill so people in cities could basically have quasi-sleeping porch and, you know, sleep partially outside. So maybe the tuberculosis kid got lucky and got to sleep on one of those, but I don't know. (laughs) See, a much better idea for someone with a sense of self-preservation. Yes, absolutely. I mean, then then there are household cleaning items, everything that you would expect from vacuum cleaners to dustpans and brooms to rugs. I'm working on an article right now on carpet and how it's been marketed as both healthy and unhealthy over time. Obviously, the unhealthy side is it traps germs and dirt and all of that. Pro-carpet, people say that, you know, if a baby falls, it will soften their fall and it will help prevent drafts in the wintertime and keep people from getting sick that way. But hardwood or not necessarily wood, linoleum and vinyl and tile floors have long used that as a strategy for selling their products. The get rid of your gross carpet and get this easy to clean, economical, sanitary (laughs) linoleum. And that's also when you saw linoleum rugs, which I love. Other household cleaning items, things like cleaning products, so Lysol, Clorox, those types of things. Yeah, there were a lot of cleaning products and those were really at the forefront of using sanitary as a way to sell the products because that was the point of the products. I do remember seeing an old ad for Kleenex that focused on like disparaging the handkerchief with the slogan, don't carry a cold in your pocket. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yes, that's actually a really good point. Anything disposable when it was introduced was typically labeled as sanitary. So Kleenex was a big version of that. Disposable forks, knives, cutlery, that type of thing. Plates, cups were probably the biggest one because for a long time, you know, when water fountains, drinking fountains were first introduced, everyone shared a common cup. 
So, you know, there's just the cup attached with a chain. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're no. gonna You're going to hate what I'm about to tell you about ice cream, D. Oh, no. That's coming up next. Yes. Perfect. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a metal cup to, attached to a chain, attached to a, you know, a public fountain, usually, you know, a temperance fountain or something like that in a, in a city or town, and everyone drank out of it. If you could see the faces D is making right now. I hate this idea. <laughs> More than anything. <laughs> there are some really, really good anti-common cup ads featuring the Grim Reaper and skeletons <laughs> and... Oh, hell yeah. The imagery is great. I'm on their side. <laughs> so in response to that, you had new water fountains called sanitary drinking fountains or sanitary bubblers where, you know, the water would bray up like kind of like, the you know, what we have today. And you could drink without putting your mouth on it. But disposable cups, most notably by a company called Health Cup, began taking off, especially on trains where the common cup was also used. And, you know, people were traveling these long distances and they needed to drink water and they would get sick because they were all sharing a cup. Anyway, so Health Cup came along with these disposable paper cups. They later changed their name to Dixie Cup. And that feeds into what Ken was about to say. Oh, hey. Yeah, so you have the Dixie Cup and I believe that's probably where you were going with ice cream as well because that was one of the other major places that Dixie Cups were used were at soda fountains and ice cream parlors. Because prior to the Dixie Cup, you had what you called a penny lick. Yeah. Which was you gave the guy a penny and he gave you a glass cup filled with ice cream without a utensil and you would lick the ice cream out of the cup and then you know lick the cup to make sure you got all the ice cream no and then you'd hand it back to the guy and he'd fill it with ice cream for the next customer no you don't need to know about germ theory to not want that to happen to you in your body (laughs) no ice cream is worth it but delicious ice cream no no put it in my hand it's only for a penny dude put it right in my hand cold stone can't give you that kind of deal nope i want you to take that scoop right in my hand right in my fingers (laughs) i'll walk away we'll both be happy (laughs) yeah so that wasn't great and also part of you know why ice cream cones and you know in addition to all the world's fair origin stories i think there are four all tied to the same world's fair but yeah same that was another way away from the common cup but you could find pretty easily you know from an antique side of things those metal dixie cup holders from soda fountains where you know they would serve ice cream or soda or whatever they were serving floats you know in these cups where you had you know the metal part the little handle you could hold on to, but the inside part was disposable Dixie cup. And that became a pretty big selling point in soda fountains and ice cream parlors. And unsurprisingly, there was a sanitary ice cream company that (laughs) made ice cream as well as had their own soda fountains. Yeah, so disposable items were (laughs) were part of this as well. Vending machines also were marketed as sanitary. So two of my favorite examples of this are sanitary cigarette vending machines. (laughs) You really get your health up there, yeah. Oh, you're solving the wrong problem. Yeah, really, really care for your body. (laughs) Um, There's an ad that says, get your favorite brand of cigarettes, fresh and sanitary, from a vending machine. (laughs) Oh my god. And then stamps 
were another type of vending machine that were labeled as sanitary stamp vending machines because, you know, you were licking these stamps and this way, if you got them from a machine, you didn't have to deal with a person and worry about who touched the stamps and if they had washed their hands. Kind of into that, actually, yeah. (laughs) Similarly, once food production began being industrialized more and more, there was this turning point from initially people being very skeptical about food produced in factories to the point where at least at the 1893 World's Fair they had these process exhibits where there'd be a miniature factory set up in one of the halls which was extremely well lit all the workers would be wearing head to toe white and people could peer in and look at what the factory process looks like. So they were able to see that it was very sanitary and clean. And then the tides turned in favor of these factory mass produced foods because it was thought that these machines and people in wearing all white would be able to produce food that was cleaner and healthier than your local baker who may or may not be washing his hands, you know, between baking bread and going to the bathroom. So you had that side also. (laughs) So many unpleasant thoughts. So many. My wallpaper's damp and my baker's not washing his hands and everyone licked the ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) D's horrible, no good, very bad day. Yeah, you would not have done done very well. Or you would have just... (laughs) Die, I die. <laughs> Just immediately. I'd be like, oh, come for me, tuberculosis. <laughs> Take me next. <laughs> he would have been a very big fan of these sanitary products. Sanitary dairies were pretty common. A lot of towns had them. You could still find glasses with advertising that say sanitary dairy. There was one in Johnstown, PA. That's probably the one I've seen the most stuff from, but they were all over. Sanitary Root Beer was a brand. The Sanitary Nest Egg Company that sold chicken eggs. Heinz. They really pushed this idea of a sterile work environment with these workers all in white and and that type of thing, especially when they were very first starting out in Pittsburgh. Uh, Sanitary ice, just plain ice that you could buy to put in your drinks was also a big deal, which I get because, you know, when the alternative was ice that's been harvested from a local pond and sitting on sawdust in a barn all year. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, I get that. (laughs) I get it. Sanitary fish markets also make sense. Hotels would advertise themselves as sanitary. Pools would as well. Sanitary laundry and dry cleaners became a thing. Sanitation was huge in the barbershop community. (laughs) And I'm sure you've come across different sterilizing pieces that were originally in barbershops in your antique travels. Yes. Antique barbicide containers are very popular. Yeah. So that's another, another good example of that. And then I kind of just have a list of some of the weirder sanitary products. Yes. Yes, please. Sanitary tobacco tins. <laughs> Again, with like the weird, like, okay, fine. Party favors, a sanitary package. <laughs> I guess I don't want someone to have licked my party favors before I got them. Yes, very important. Cookie cutters, powder puffs, <laughs> garden knives, clothing hangers, cake testers, bottle toppers for cream or milk, butter churns, self-basting roasters, wiping cloths, chalk. <laughs> 
by sanitary soap. Yes. Yes. All the soap products. A pair of underwear called sanitary envelope drawers. Okay. All right. A new protective undergarment, dainty, modish, and comfortable, gives distinctive skirt effect, has rubberized insert, cloth covered, does not chafe or chill. And this appears to be different than sanitary pads, belts, and aprons. For menstrual purposes. So it's a distinct product. Yes. Rubber insert. Is that so you don't go pee pee pants? Like. I guess. Or like chafing seems to be and like keeping you cool seems to be a concern there. So I guess that's a a thing that you would want. Do you know what's up with this? Write it and teach podcast at gmail.com. I guess it could make sense that chafing makes your skin like raw and gross. So if you just see that, you're like, that's not sanitary. So you would seek an anti-chafing measure. Sure. Maybe spitballing. And like saying that they're cooling, I would get it if they would make you sweat less, but I don't see how that's possible. No. Because, you know, for periods, if people did not want to wear the sanitary belt and pad setup, you get a sanitary apron, which you would tie around your waist. But instead of facing forward like you normally wear an apron, usually it faced back. And so the stains wouldn't get on the clothing. Oh. They also made a similar product for female dogs. Oh, spaying and spaying and neutering would not be the thing yet. I'm not entirely sure how the dog reproductive system works, but yes, that probably they were called doggy britches. The modern sanitary <laughs> garment for female dogs in season. I feel like that's a missed opportunity to call them bitch britches. The bitches. Yes. <laughs> But yeah, if you do not get your female dog fixed and she does not get pregnant, she will bleed on things. Yeah, they have a startlingly similar to human menstrual cycle. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That I'm not I'm not super familiar with. But yeah, the company that makes them is called Hollywood Dog Togs. <laughs> An incredible, very good. <laughs> so at least they missed bitch britches, but they got that one. So there we okay. go. So there's that. But yeah, uh, as you can see, there were just, uh, you know, the word sanitary and sanitation was used to sell a little bit of everything and some things that are with us, some things that are no longer with us. I don't have a definitive end point of when highlighting a product's sanitary effectiveness kind of stopped or stopped or fell off. But I usually put that in the 1950s-ish when we started having more antibiotics like streptomycin for TB, for example. And really, it's when you started seeing wall-to-wall carpeted bathrooms and fuzzy toilet seat covers. Like, at at that point, you're not worried about germs anymore. Clearly not. (laughs) You're obviously, you're not worried about much. In fact, I believe that you're spitting in the face of God and asking him to kill you at that point. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to bring back cholera. Come on, everybody. (laughs) So that is obviously in no way scientific. That is just coming from me as an observer of and, you know, person who's been researching this topic. That to me, if I had to like draw a line, when that became acceptable, I think people stopped relying on their homes as their primary means of protection against disease and started relying more on medications and stuff like that. Because, yeah. I don't want to be a literal party pooper, but, you know, just do a quick Google search for aerosolization and bathroom 
bathroom and get on with me and everything being a wipeable surface. Yes. Keep your toothbrush in the shower. Or the cabinet. Or the cabinet. Put it inside. Get it inside quick. (laughs) (laughs) Hide its little head. (laughs) This is a great episode to highlight, like, my contamination anxiety. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But it's also very sound advice, I feel. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those things where it's like, you don't notice it's happening until it's happening. And then you're like, wow, I have a lot of strong opinions on carpets and bathrooms. Like, oh, it's so, it's just so yucky. I didn't know I needed to have a strong opinion about this today, but here I am. But I've made it and I stand by it. <laughs> yes, probably like the opinion you now have of the common cup. Yes, I love cups. My washable cups with my accessible sink, perhaps a dishwasher, a disposable cup, my Dixie cups for my tooth, my brushes. I'm going to kiss them all goodnight now. (laughs) (laughs) And then head on down to Coldstone for a good penny lick. Oh, God. Uh, uh. (laughs) I'm picturing Coldstone bringing it back. And at this point, like, there would be people who were like, we're going to eat from the communal ice cream trough to own the libs. Like, come on, everybody. Well, yeah, it's just like, you get... (laughs) Think about it, though. They already mix on a cold stone. They just need, like, a big slab of marble in, like, the middle of the restaurant that they can smear your ice cream on and you can lick it off. Yeah, they just need, like, little headrests so you can just put your, settle your mouth in and go to town. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that reminds me of the ice luge that people had in college at parties. Oh, my God. Someone tried to get me to use one of those at a party. Disgusting. No. On a scale of one to Edward Forty Hands, how bad of an idea is this? All the way. The yeah. ice luge? It's not a great idea. I mean, it's it's very penny licks to me. Yeah, I don't like, yeah. Ask, having my friends ask me to like, put your mouth on this communal piece of ice. Consider this. Bite me. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be as sanitary. <laughs> Yeah, but I think it's probably pretty fitting that a place you will find something that harkens back to this time are frat parties. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Right down to eating living creatures you shouldn't be. <laughs> Goodness. That was, I'm sure, way more than you needed or wanted. Unsanitary stuff. I wanted it I all. I loved it. And I, I loved, loved it all. <laughs> I mean, you pro- I'm sure you recognized it and, you know, noticed it before. But, you know, as you're looking at antique stuff, you will see sanitary pop up all over the place, probably. And yeah, it's not necessarily something I look for, but it just, I'm like, oh, a sanitary bottle topper for a dollar. I probably need it, even though I don't get my milk delivered in (laughs) glass bottles. It's definitely one of those fun things where you don't notice it, but once you know what you're looking for, you start seeing it everywhere. Yes. Which is like super fun. I'm looking forward to going out and discovering more sanitary products. Yay! Yay, that would be great. I have no idea about value because I don't know if other people like them as much as I do or even care. (laughs) It definitely sounds like a narrow collector's market, but it's got high crossover because like I know people collect bottle toppers that are really into milk collectibles, old dairy, dairyana. So I'd say there's actually, uh, there's a lot of opportunity there. Yeah. Probably. I mean, and to me, you know, a frying pan that is no longer usable, that has sanitary in the handle, was a steal at $4. But like, <laughs> to somebody else, they might see it as garbage. So, you know, if this is something that interests you, it's definitely out there. And when it's something that's not special for another reason or desirable for another reason, then I think there's still opportunity to get things for not crazy money. 
Yeah, and they represent this such a unique span of time in history. And such scientific historical significance. Yes. <laughs> so many licks to Penny. Yes. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Elizabeth. This has been a delight this having fantastic. you. Fantastic! We've learned so much. Oh, great! I love talking about sanitary things. Clearly, and uh, yeah, any time. If people want to read more of your writings or check out more of what you have to say on sanitary movement and other, where can they find you? My website, which has not been updated in probably a year, um, <laughs> is my name ElizabethYuko.com. I'm also on Instagram at ElizabethYuko and. And on Twitter at Elizabethics, E-L-I-Z-A-B-E-T-H-I-C-S, because I'm a bioethicist and that just made sense. Which I love, by the way. I saw your Twitter handle and I got so excited. It's a delightful <laughs> portmanteau. I mean, I couldn't not. And I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did not <laughs> so, do that because it's it made me smile. God, I'm so glad. But uh, oh yeah, in, in terms of specific publications, most of my work on this topic has been in Bloomberg City Lab, Architectural Digest, and one article in Real Simple. So those are all out there. Luckily, I have an easy name to Google because it's a weird one. So <laughs> that helps. Awesome. If you would like to suggest episode topics or just say hello, you can email us directly antiquesfreakspodcast at gmail.com. You can post in our Facebook group, Antiques Freaks Friends, or you can tag us on Tumblr, antiquesfreaks.tumblr.com. If you would like to listen to deleted scenes or listen to our special bonus episode presentation of the Victorian Penny Dreadful Varian the Vampire, you can hit up our Patreon at patreon.com slash antiquesfreaks. Special shout out to our patrons for paying our hosting fees and filling our hearts with love. And thank you in particular for listening. Au revoir!